Spectrums next. Welcome to Spectrum, the science and technology show on KALX Berkeley, a bi-weekly 30-minute program bringing you interviews featuring Bay Area scientists and technologists. Good afternoon. I'm Rick Karneski. Brad Swift and I are the hosts of today's show. Today we're talking about science education of underrepresented minorities with the Level Plainfield Institute, who run the SMASH, Summer Math and Science Honors Academy, that happens here at Cal and at Stanford, UCLA, and USC. We have the executive director, Jarvis Sulser, the director of research and evaluation, Allison Scott, and scholars Ruby Alcazar and Haley Shavers. Jarvis, why don't you tell me a little bit about LPFI? It's a level playing field institute. Um, our mission is to remove barriers for students of color who are pursuing degrees in STEM, in STEM being science, technology, engineering, and math and to untap their potential for the advancement of our nation. And the organization was founded in 2001 by Frida K. Poor Klein, focused on issues in the workplace around diversity. And we started our Smash Academy at Berkeley in 2004, and we've continued to run the program and have expanded to UCLA, USC, and Stanford for the last couple of years. Can someone summarize what Smash Academy is? So Smash is a three-year, five-week residential program for low-income students of color who have an interest in pursuing STEM degrees in college. And so we support these students through our five-week residential program starting in the summer after their ninth grade year, and they stay with us for three years. Then we provide additional support in the first two years of college through one of our strategic partners. And can you tell me how scholars get involved in the program? Our scholars come from the nine barrier counties, and they're first nominated by their teachers, particularly if they get a math and science recommendation, and they go through a rigorous application process similar to what a senior in high school would experience going to college. And then there's an um, application they complete, a math assessment, group interviews with staff and even current scholars in the program. And then we make a selection of the students. We have about a 30% acceptance rate of students who apply. How did you two find out about the program? I was friends with Rachel Sims' niece and she told me about the program and she said, Haley, I know you like math and I know you really like this, so you should apply. And I was kind of skeptical. I was like, but that's my summer. I'm trying to, you know, <laughs> go places. She's like, just do it. And I did. I got in and it's best. It's the best. I like it. I like it a lot. Yeah. Well, my sister was actually a scholar before I was. And so I found it from her. Um, she's four years older than I am. The way she found out was through her guidance counselor. At our high school. What kind of activities do uh, take place over that five weeks? I think scholars should speak to that because they, <laughs> sure. they live and breathe it. Breathe it. <laughs> it's been different almost every summer, our schedules. We have classes five days a week, sometimes even on Sundays. So those classes include the core class like math and science and our science writing class. And, but we also take like tech media, engineering, electronics, and then we also have guest speakers. We call them speaker series. We listen to different people that come from like STEM fields and what they're doing with their lives and their careers. 
And we also go on a lot of field trips. What's your favorite activity? I think my favorite activity would have to be a field trip we took to Pixar. We got to tour the place in Emeryville, and we also got to sit in on a presentation by one of the programmers who worked on Brave. It was it was really fun to see the inside of Pixar and just to see how they've created all the great movies that I've watched since I was little. You are listening to Spectrum on KALX Berkeley. We're talking to the Level Plainfield Institute about science education of underrepresented minorities. So a lot of research shows that our students come to us from schools which are typically under-resourced, which means that they lack oftentimes access to high-quality teachers, advanced placement courses that would prepare them for success in college, um, in addition to extracurricular activities such as the ones that the scholars described that they participate in SMASH, so including things like computer science or robotics, which they might not have at their high schools. And so that's a really great way SMASH is found to remove some of the barriers that face these students. Allison, can you talk to us a little bit more about the specific audience of underrepresented students of color that SMASH hopes to educate? How are their needs different? How are what they already have access to different? One of the things that we find or that research demonstrates is that if you look at the science and engineering workforce, um, African-American and Latinos make up only 7% of the entire science and engineering workforce, which is a really concerning number considering that those populations are rapidly growing and that the needs of our our economy and our nation are trending towards STEM occupations. And so um, just that statistic alone speaks to the fact that, that we are leaving behind a significant portion of our population and not preparing them for the skills that they'll need in the future. And another interesting stat is that only being we in the heart of Silicon Valley, where companies are founded almost every day, um, that companies founded by student, um, individual colors, that's the 1%. And so to have, you know, and most people who found, who found companies, who, um, to start companies in the Bay Area, in the Valley, people with typically with STEM backgrounds. And so we have, uh, as Alice mentioned, a, a, a tremendous amount of potential in students who could be founders of their own company and, and really transform not only their lives, but the lives of many in their community and beyond. Is there something special about the Bay Area that would inspire programs like this to start here? I think the diversity of the type of students we have in the barrier and the fact we, we have multiple cities represented. I mean, there are students in our program, say from the East Bay, who may never set foot on Berkeley campus, even though it's a boy right away. Or you have students who live in, in the peninsula who may never step foot on Stanford's campus. So that the opportunity to have two world-class universities in our backyard, so to speak, and our scholars have an opportunity to experience those campuses in terms of the labs and access to graduate students and even faculty, I think makes the very unique place. And in addition, there's the, obviously, um, we have Silicon Valley in our backyard. So we have access to a lot of companies and employees of those companies who are very willing to come and speak to our scholars and provide uh, role models. And back to the scholars, yes. um, do you participate in science and math events outside of both SMASH and, and the school year? 
Um, I actually just got an internship for um, building like a teen website in my like hometown, Palo Alto. I also do this thing at my school called College Pathways. It's um, run by my guidance counselor and it's specifically also for minorities and people of color. We go visit different campuses and uh, kind of similar to speaker series, we have guest speakers that we listen to. Um, a lot of them have been like engineers and entrepreneurs. Um, so for me, other than Smashcast, which uh, introduces me to a lot of new programs, I tend to just experiment. If I see something that I like, I'll research it and find out what's behind it and how can I learn. And that's that's been my whole mindset since, I guess, my sophomore year of high school. And it hasn't stopped. Do you have so. examples? I have made two, no, three mobile apps. They're very, like, simple. But I made them, so I... I I felt like I feel really accomplished. I show like a bunch of my friends and they kind of just look at me like this doesn't do anything. It just, you know, moves. But I'm like, you know, this is a lot of work. <laughs> I've made this. I spent countless hours, you know, fixing it, making sure it doesn't have any errors. And it's, it's been good. I, my parents, they support me. And even though I'm like the techie of the house, they don't really understand what I'm talking about, but I explain it. And, they get it after a while, and they're like, oh, this makes so much sense, and then they start bragging to all their friends. And so, <laughs> but but it's been good, yeah. So you've mentioned Smashcast a few times, but yes. I don't think we've actually talked about what that is. So did you want to give a summary of Smashcast? Um, I think I can. <laughs> um, so Smashcast is almost like the extension of our tech and media class that we take over the summer, and the CAST stands for Communications and Social Technology. I want to say we also experiment and like get exposed to different programs. So right now we're diving into Corona, which is a mobile app programming. And we've learned some of the terminology and uh, we've had a few mobile app companies come and visit us and they've talked about how they've created some of their games and we got to like test their games and uh, give them feedback You're listening to Spectrum on KALX Berkeley. We're talking with Jarvis, Allison, Ruby, and Haley about SMASH, the Summer Math and Science Honors Academy. And what's it like returning back to your regular high school after the end of the summer? It was kind of weird. I was so used to seeing the same faces six or not six thirty, but like seven ish in the morning until you know lights out at eleven o'clock. I guess it was, I mean it's nice to go back to high school, but at the same time, I would always really miss Smash. Smash is always what I'd look forward to during the entire year. I guess it was kind of going back to my classes also because I was the only like person of color in a lot of my classes, especially like my science classes. Um, for me, it was it was kind of disappointing. Because my high school is, it's really small. And I, I like the small atmosphere. Yet again, I like being surrounded by people who are, are driven to do better. Um, at my high school, I tend, I have a small group of friends. 
And at times, they kind of have a lack of motivation to do better. So I'm always there to push them. I'm like, come on, you guys. Let's do this work. Let's get it done. Um, but at Smash, it was kind of vice versa. We pushed each other to a point where we did our best. And we got the work done. And we still had fun. And also, the classes at my escort are kind of disappointing. Being that I have a computer science class, yet there's only like five people. And maybe two out of the five are really interested in the class. And then also for my math class, it's me and what other one other junior because we take a higher level. And we're kind of more advanced than the seniors, which is kind of disappointing, being that they're kind of kind of our role models, but they're they lack that motivation to apply for the colleges and they procrastinate a bunch and it's not good. But I think my junior class will be a really good senior class because I'm a part of it. So <laughs> <laughs> Does LPFI help students after they go on to college? Yes, we do. We have a strategic partner called Beyond 12, and their primary focus is to provide support to first-generation college students in their first two years of college because the statistics show that if a student can make it through their first two years of college, their, their chance of graduating from college significantly increases. Haley, hmm. Haley, how did you get started in STEM? It would have to be my big cousin. He makes like custom computers for different people. And I would always go over his house and just be interested in what he was building that day. And he would make them look really interesting and show me all the parts and from there, I joined this weekend program that was held at a college, and we just got to experience different forms of science and engineering and math, and we got to take apart a computer and put it back together. And I think from there, I've always wanted to know how a computer works from the inside and see what I can make for other people to use. I like game design and game programming being that. You play a game, and there may be some errors, but for the most part, it's it's smooth. And I want to be that person behind that game, writing that code so you can play. How about Ruby? What what got it going for you? Well, I had a really, really good math teacher my eighth grade year, so middle school. And uh, I grew really close with her. It was just like a friendship that we had beyond, like, student-teacher. Like, I'd go to her when I have issues, and we'd just talk, like... I just sit in a classroom and talk with her during lunch or something. I guess what that initially kind of started thinking, like, well, she's so cool and she does math too. Like, I can do that. And then that started my math interest specifically. Like, math has always been one of my favorite subjects. My mom actually forced me to take a computer class my eighth grade year, a web design class. I actually ended up enjoying it a lot. I was actually grateful for that. And so that kind of snowballed. And and then my sister, during my middle school years, she got accepted into Smash, and then she'd come back, like, every weekend telling me all these stories. And so I was like, oh, well, my sister is basically my biggest role model. And so I wanted to experience that, too. You are listening to Spectrum on KALX Berkeley. We're talking with representatives from LPFI, the Level Playing Field Institute, Jarvis, I was I was really intrigued with your mentioning of STEAM by adding the A for art <laughs> into STEM. 
And do you feel that that's maybe the next wave of creativity coming into STEM? Now it'll become STEAM. I think so. I mean, there's been a lot of conversation around that, and um, there's definitely a lot of value because of the, the again the creativity piece. I think just look at you know the iPhone. You know, Steve Jobs got was inspired by the calligraphy class thing that he had at one point that led to a lot of what you know did some of the design, right? So. If you didn't have that class, who knows what may have, what direction may have taken her. So I think there's just one example of how it was the art that, that inspired and even some of the designs of other type of devices. It's not coming naturally from engineers per se, but those who have this art sort of angle adds another flavor and another level of creativity. I say an engineer's not creative, but I mean, you look at, you know, a lot of the creativity. I mean, even for an engineer who's in a, you know, hardcore class, if they have that art, they can add another level of dimension to their own repertoire, so to speak, as they design you know, different types of devices and things of that nature. How about Haley? Do you think art is something you'd be interested in, including in your STEM, getting some studio work somehow, you know, something design-oriented? Uh, definitely. I think if I have a piece of art included with my programming, I could create a lot of things. Games are so visual. Exactly. Totally Exactly, visual. yeah. And if it's art that I like and that I've made, then I can say I've made a whole entire game by myself, or at least with a whole team. And, it, yeah, that would be really, yeah. Art is very important. What sort of tools and discipline has Smash provided for you as, you know, as individuals, kind of personal tools to help you succeed? Definitely time management, because of all of our classes, we have homework in almost each class, and we we always have to manage our time because we do have free time. But if you're not going to do your homework, then you're procrastinating, and then that's not good. But then also teamwork, because we work in groups in almost every class, and you have to push your group members so we can all get the project done in Timely matter. So time management ties back into that too. Any advice for people who are considering joining up? Yes. For any prospective like applicants or scholars, definitely time management because those things come up really quick. Getting your teacher recs in on time, getting your essays done on time, I guess to the future scholars, really just keep an open mind. There's a lot of different people that come and go through the program and just to take all that you can from all these different people because you're not always going to get this chance. If you got accepted, like there's a reason why you're there, and so take as much as you can from it. Is is level playing field on Facebook and Twitter? Yes. You can go to our website, um, www.lpfi.org, and you will see the links there to get connected. And are you trying to recruit either new scholars or new volunteers or anything like that? Yes, we're trying to recruit new donors. So anyone who, who like what they've heard today and want to impact more scholars, go to our website and donate. Also looking for volunteers, those who want to get connected and volunteer their time, their resources. And we're obviously always looking for more talented scholars like Ruby and Haley. <laughs> Everyone from LPFI, Jarvis and Allison and Ruby and Haley, thanks for joining us. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank Thank you. you.
Students wishing to apply to the Smash Academy can visit www.lpfi.org smash. Online registration closes Friday, February 15th at midnight. Online applications are due Friday, March 1st at midnight. Potential donors can also visit the LPFI website to learn more. Brad Swift joins me for some science news headlines. UC Berkeley News Center reports the publication of a study by University of Texas at Austin and University of California Berkeley researchers Shalini Jha and Claire Kremen in the journal PNAS shows landscapes with large amounts of paved roads and impervious construction have lower numbers of ground-nesting bumblebees, which are important native pollinators. The study suggests that increasing the number of species-rich flowering patches in suburban and urban gardens, farms, and restored habitats could provide pathways for bees to forage and improve pollination services over large areas. The findings have major applications for global pollinator conservation on a rapidly urbanizing planet. Though it may seem obvious that pavement and ground nesting don't mix, Ja said our understanding of the effects of pavement and urban growth on native bees has been largely anecdotal. Bumblebees nest in the ground, and each colony contains a queen and a force of workers. Unlike honeybees, which are not native, bumblebees do not make harvestable honey. They do, however, provide important pollination services to plants. To study the bumblebees, Ja did not scour the landscape for nests in the ground, which has proved in the past to be very difficult, especially over large areas. Instead, she analyzed the genetic relatedness of bees foraging in the landscape. Ja used this information, plus the bees' location, to estimate the number of bee colonies in an area and determine how far afield the individual bees were foraging. The UC Berkeley News Center reports on findings presented on Monday, December 17th at the American Society for Cell Biology's annual meeting in San Francisco. Researchers from Cal and Lawrence Berkeley showed that mechanical forces can revert and stop out-of-control growth of cancer cells. Professor of Bioengineering Dan Fletcher said that tissue organization is sensitive to mechanical input from the environment at the beginning stages of growth and development. The team grew malignant breast epithelial cells in a gelatin-like substance that had been injected into flexible silicone chambers. The flexible chambers allowed the researchers to apply a compressive force in the first stages of cell development. Over time, the compressed malignant cells grew into more organized, healthy-looking structures. The researchers used time-lapse microscopy over several days to show that early compression also induced coherent rotation in the malignant cells, a characteristic feature of normal development. The new center added that it should be noted that the researchers are not proposing the development of compression bras as a treatment for breast cancer. Compression in and of itself is not likely to be a therapy, said Flesher. But this does give us new clues to track down the molecules and structures that could eventually be targeted for therapies. Here's another UC Berkeley News Center report. A simple, precise, and inexpensive method for cutting DNA to insert genes into human cells could transform genetic medicine, making routine what now are expensive, complicated, and rare procedures for replacing defective genes in order to fix genetic disease or battle diseases like AIDS. Discovered last year by Jennifer Doudna and Martin Jinnick of the Howard Hughes Medical Institute and University of California, Berkeley, and Emmanuel Carpentier 
of the Laboratory for Molecular Infection Medicine in Sweden and published in Science, the new technique was proven to work cutting bacterial DNA. Two new papers published last week in the journal Science Express demonstrated that the technique also works in human cells. A third new paper by Doudna and her team reporting similarly successful results in human cells has been accepted for publication by the new open-access journal eLife. The key to the new technique involves an enzyme called Cas9. Doudna discovered the Cas9 enzyme while working on the immune system of bacteria with evolved enzymes that cut DNA to defend themselves against viruses. These bacteria cut up viral DNA and stick pieces of it into their own DNA from which they make RNA that binds and inactivates the virus. This is a poster child for the role of basic science in making fundamental discoveries that affect human health, Doudna said. A regular feature of Spectrum is a calendar of some of the science and technology-related events happening in the Bay Area over the next two weeks. Here's Brad Swift. On selected Saturdays from 9.30 a.m. to 1.30 p.m., experience the beauty and rich natural history of Audubon Canyon Ranch's 535-acre Bovary Preserve. Participants are divided into small groups and paired with a trained Bovier volunteer to explore the mixed evergreen forest, flower-carpeted oak woodland, and rugged chaparral. Guided natural walks range from two to five miles. Visitors of all ages are welcome. There is no charge, but donations are appreciated. See the website for reservation information. Go to egret.org. The next three hikes are on Saturday, January 12th, March 9th, and March 23rd. That website again, egret.org. Here's a presentation on overconfidence and the frailty of knowledge. While self-confidence is a prized human attribute, too much confidence can be obnoxious, pernicious, and even deadly. This audience participation, SkepTalk, will present a simple 10-question quiz to measure an important aspect of individual self-confidence. With analysis and discussion of these measurements, audience members will be better able to calibrate properly their personal levels of self-confidence. The ultimate goal will be a healthier skepticism towards one's own depth of knowledge about the world. This event is a joint production of the Bay Area Skeptics and Wonderfest, the Bay Area Beacon of Science. The speakers are Dr. Marilyn Colon, California State University East Bay Lecturer in Psychology, and Tucker Hyatt, Stanford Visiting Scholar and Wonderfest Founding Executive Director. This will be held Wednesday, January 16th at 7.30 p.m. until approximately 9.30 p.m. The location is La Peña Lounge, 3105 Shattuck Avenue in Berkeley. The American Association of University Women presents Do Girls Love Science? You Betcha! Come hear Stanford's Dr. Sigrid Close explain why. Dr. Sigrid Close is the co-host of the 2011 series Known Universe, which aired on the National Geographic Channel. She is an assistant professor at Stanford's Department of Aeronautics and Astronautics, where she heads up the Space Environment and Satellite Systems Lab. This event happens Thursday, January 17th, at the Sunnyvale Heritage Park Museum, 570 Remington Drive in Sunnyvale, California. The doors open at 7, announcements at 7.15, speaker at 7.30. For more information on this free event, visit www.aauw-sv-cupt 
www.cal.org. The next Science at Cal lecture will be on January 19th. The talk will be given by Dr. Mark Lescroart and is entitled The Shape of Our Thoughts, Visual Perception of Geometric Shape. Most people think that seeing is something that happens in the eyes, but many aspects of our perception of the world are determined by neural computations that occur in the brain. The visual cortex, the part of the brain that processes vision, takes up nearly a third of our cerebral real estate. Different regions of the visual cortex respond to different aspects or features of visual stimuli. Les Croart will discuss his work, which shows how intermediate visual processing areas in the visual cortex respond to variation in object silhouettes and 3D surface orientations. This lecture will happen at 11 a.m. on January 19th in the Genetics and Plant Biology Building, Room 100 on the UC Berkeley campus. The music you heard during today's show was by Lestana David from his album Folk and Acoustic. It is released under a Creative Commons license, version 3.0. Spectrum was recorded and edited by me, Rick Karneski, and by Brad Swift. Thank you for listening to Spectrum. We are happy to hear from listeners. If you have comments about the show, please send them to us via email. Our email address is spectrum.kalx at yahoo.com. Join us in two weeks at this same time.